Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. My name is Beverly Rogers and I lead the civic events team for Auckland Council. Um, and we're very happy to um, have this evening um, organised by the advisory panel um, for the Sir John Logan Campbell lecture. And this year we have um, partnered with uh, Auckland Conversations, um, the team here, um, and I'm sure that most of you are very well uh, used to coming to uh, a lot of their events over the last year or two. Um, Auckland Conversations would like to acknowledge the partner sponsor, Rosine, programme supporters, Brookfield's Lawyers, Boffer Miskill, Architectural Designers New Zealand, New Zealand Institute of Architects, New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. Thank you to those sponsors. Without whom, of course, none of the uh, lectures would occur. Just a couple of housekeeping um, items. The toilets are through the door there and um, across the foyer area to your left. Should uh, we have an emergency, the fire alarm will sound and you should exit immediately through the uh, doors here to the town hall uh, apex stairwell. Um, walk, don't run, I, I'm told. Use the stairs, not the lift and assemble in Aotea Square. But I'm sure that's not going to happen tonight. Without further ado, I'll invite our kaumātua, Matt Maihi, to open with a karakia. Ā, tēnā no tātou katoa. Timata tango tātou tēnei hui mo tātou karakia. Start our journey this evening. I'd like to say a prayer for us in unity. E honoro e korori a mangarongi ki te pēna me te pakaaro pai ki ngā tangata katoa. Ki ngā tūmana ki a koutou nei e manaki. Manaki nei mai tenei hui hui manai tenei ata. Mo tātou wairu hoki o tātou te kaupa o te rā nei. Te kaupa o tenei pō. Mo tātou kōrero ana ko tātou hitori o tāmaki makaurau. Ki te kāhara wa wai i roa hoki o ta rangatira a Kiri Hau. Engari, taima nei wa tenei wā ka te harama nei te mahi kotahi tenei pō. Āke tonu āke, āmeni. Kā tu ana hau tenei te mihi ana ki ako heke koutou. Kā no au taku te tiro ki ngā tai ana ki te unga o ngā tūbuna. Kā neke mai taku te tiro ki te maonga e tu ake nei, kia, kia, hau. Te pane i aro atra motu, a rangi toto. A te motu te rangi toto, ki rara nei, ki te awa o tāmaki. Nā te awa o tāmaki, i muri hoki, maui, te aramoana o te waitemata. Te waitemata, Ta herenga o ngā waka, o ngā tūpuna. Kia koutou tūpuna, ki te hāramai nei, ki tā maki makaura. Huri atu ki te moana o te waitemata, 
e noho ana ki te whenua ki o rākei, te puru o tāmaki o ngā tūpuna mātua, ta hapu ngā oho te tāu urungutu. Ka puta mai te kawanatanga te paipai o te whenua, ki runga rawa ki takaparapau, e tuake nei ta mano ngāti whātua ki o rākei, tēnei te mihi, tēnei te mihi, tēnei te mihi. As I stand and recite my prayer for us this evening, it's to be inclusive of us all as we are gathered here on a special night that we celebrate the goodness of Auckland, the goodness of Tāmaki Makoto, by a gentleman who's of his time. So in saying that, I ask that we come together as one to celebrate in unity and in harmony. And then I mentioned about my ancestral path, pathway, and I pay homage to them. Maunga Kia Kia, as we know, One Tree Hill, <coughs> out to Mount Hobson. And of course, that tall one across the way of Rangitoto stands so proud for us all, which leads me into the Awa or Tamaki, my boundary to go south. And then I turn to the Waitemata, the Moana of the Waitemata, the rippling waters, where all my ancestors travel through to be here. And all your ancestors travel also. And even today, many more people are travelling via the Moana of the Waitemata. And I say to you, hi, hi, mate. Then I go back to the Fenua, the land once again, where the Manai stands, out of Orake, and that is my mana, and I'm here tonight to present my mana to you, to say, as one we are together, that in unity and harmony, that tomorrow will always be a fine day. And especially when we read the books that we're about to hear about tonight, I'm sure, Kerry, mihi ana kiakwe, mihi ana kiakwe. So, for all of us here, coming under the mantle of this wonderful house, the heart of Tamaki Makoto, of this party, of this marae, and I mihi to our koromatua, tarangatira kaiti mihi ana kiakwe. Kaiti mihi ana kiakwe ko tatu mahi, mahi pai mahi ora o koto iwi, Atamaki Makoto, Tenakwe Tarangatira. Memo Takoto Puari, to all of the um, distinguished people who represent many places here in Tamaki that brings us all here together to be as one. And so, can I take this opportunity in thanking, allowing me to be part of the beginning of, of this journey here to, today, tonight. <coughs> And you would have to excuse me because I'm going to make sure that there's no fire down the bottom and keep any fires at bay <laughs> because I'll have to leave early. And if you see me coming out of downstairs, the mayor, look at the orchestra down there tonight, and I might slip in there if I can't slip in there. Well, if I have to pay, well, I won't be going. <laughs> I might just say, oh, the mayor said I can come under his name. But however... Tonight is about us here in this journey 
And can, can I just say once again, Atena Kotau, Atena Kotau, Kiromai Natata. Thank you, Kalmatua Met Mahi of Ngāti Whātua Araki. We do appreciate you joining us today um, and um, passing on your wise words. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to acknowledge Mayor Lynn Brown here tonight and also members of the Sir John Logan Campbell Advisory Panel. We have Professor Stone, who was the inaugural um, lecturer, lecturer um, of this series. Um, when was it, Professor Stone? 20... 2011, 2012. Um, so it's lovely to hear you, to see you here tonight, and also Sandra Coney, who's on the panel. And I can't see anybody else from the panel here. But of course, Kerry, thank you very much for being here tonight. And um, without further ado, I'll invite Marilyn Brown to. Um, Welcome you and to introduce Kerry. Thank you. Tihe Māori ora. Ita kingi tuhetia, krori e kiti atua, rauranga tērama tēnā koe met. Mihi mai, mihi mai, mihi mai. Hei kui mai, koromai, te iwi o nga te whātua o rāke te iwi o tamaki makaurau. Kua huihui mai nei, no rei rā, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. It's wonderful to see you all here. Matt, thank you for opening these proceedings. And it's always great to be sharing an occasion with you. And this is, for us, a packed out occasion. Great to see so many of you here. Faces from all around our community. Tonight, we will hear from Professor Emeritus Kerry Howe. Kerry, it's wonderful to have you here, and we most certainly are looking forward to your words. Can we put our hands together for Kerry uh, in encouragement to him? <laughs> Kerry, I'd just like to uh, commence an introduction of you with some uh, reflections uh, to give you a little bit of meat to chew on the bone. Uh, so, uh, some context, reflections, and I suspect challenges for us as we go forward. It is a packed out venue here tonight. Uh, the biggest crowd in the history of the Sir John Logan Campbell Lecture Series. Uh, that may say something about the way Aucklanders view the Gulf and our beautiful Three Harbours. We've tended to explore themes related to heritage, Auckland's related heritage, Auckland's history, and other issues of relevance to the Sir John Logan Campbell legacy. And that is absolutely appropriate given the relationship between Sir John Logan Campbell to Cornwall Park and Maunga Keakea. The recent planting of trees on the summit of Maunga Keakea One Tree Hill continues and honours that legacy. I want to acknowledge the members of the mayoral advisory panel who each year helped me to choose uh, subjects for this lecture. Uh, Professor Russell Stone, Rod Oram, Sandra Coney and Adrian Young-Cooper. Can we please put our hands together for those good people who have done an excellent job. It is fitting that this year's John Logan Campbell Memorial Lecture should focus on the Hauriki Gulf, Tikapa Moana. 
He made his home on Motokarea or Brown's Island, which he brought from the Ngāti Tamatera uh, in 1840. Along with his business partner, William Brown, he established a pig farm to supply the emerging settlement of Auckland before moving to the mainland when it proclaimed the capital. So much of our history, our culture and our identity as Aucklanders is tied up <coughs> in the mighty, salty gulf. 4,000 square kilometres line between us and the Coromandel, the Hauraki Gulf is our visual touchstone. Rangitoto, our largest volcano, an instantly recognisable image of our home. From the earliest settlement of this great city, the Gulf has been an essential lifeline, the main means of arrival for all settlers, the source of our commerce, and the very reason why so many people make this city their home. Historically, there was, there's sometimes been a bit of a tussle between east and west, so before I talk too much about the Hauraki, I want to acknowledge the beautiful Waitamata and her wilder west coast sisters, the Manukau and the Kaipara. But tonight, it is the turn of the Gulf. And when I think of the Hauraki Gulf, I think of sports, recreation, art and literature, but also politics and cultural turbulence. Auckland's history was formed on and around these beautiful waters. For many, the Gulf is a place of recreation, fishing, sailing, kayaking, or just lazing on a beach. The vineyards of Waiheke, the wilds of Great Barrier, the Gulf offers opportunities for all kinds of great enjoyment. We celebrate Auckland on the Gulf through events such as Anniversary Day regattas, Round the Bays and America's Cup. Who could ever forget the powerful experience that we each have shared over the years of Waka pulling through her waters. She's also the training ground of many of our champions, American Cup yachties, our Olympic sports men and women. The inspiration of our artists, writers, painters and playwrights. CK Stead, Janet Frame in Takapuna. The gripping young adult read of Night Race to Kowo by Tessa Duda. The gentle nostalgia of the end of the golden weather by Bruce Mason, but we know the Gulf isn't always calm. It can be a place of storms, protest and cultural revolution. At Stony Batter, Narrow Neck and on the Tamaki Drive foreshore, we see gun emplacements built in fear of a Russian invasion. She has been a site for some of our more recent defining political moments. Dame Fida leading her, leading her people on Hikoi across the bridge. Bastion Point, nuclear warships, the Rainbow Warrior, and lighter forms of cultural revolution too. For those of my age and older, we will never forget the pirates of Radio Hauraki. It's a place of natural abundance, birds, dolphins, whales, fish. The treasure islands of Tiritiri, Matangi, Rotorua, Mototapu, the seabirds at Miranda, the Hauraki Gulf Marine Park and the mainland sanctuaries of Tawharanui and Shakespeare Park. When the Gulf flourishes though, we know our city flourishes. Unfortunately today it's not so easy to talk about our Gulf flourishing. Instead we have a legacy of overfishing, pollution from agriculture and the burgeoning Auckland urban development. Litter on the foreshore and, foreshore and seabed and the biodiversity of the Gulf is under clear threat. With the pressures of growth, are we turning our back on our Gulf? And are we taking for granted the treasures 
that she has offered us through the millennia. The work of the Hauraki Golf Forum and its State of Golf report paints a serious picture, an urgent call for help. We know people care. Sea change. Tai Timu Tai Pare has made that abundantly clear. The listening posts held in 2014 and the resulting voices of the golf booklet underscore just how much people value this beautiful place. Again and again, people talked of how blessed we are to live on and around our golf and how we all need to take care of this taonga. So now we must act. We need to do better for our waters, to think of them in all our land-based activities. As we grow, because we know Auckland is going to keep growing, we must grow greener. This means finding better ways to manage sediments and pollutants, fixing wastewater <coughs> overflows, working across the catchments, Sandra, from the top of the Waitakere Ranges right down to the coast and the Gulf itself. It means being better prepared for the impacts of climate change, warming waters, rising sea levels, recognising the potential for massive disruption to both biodiversity and our community. It means working with our partners, the mana whenua, our neighbours to the north and south, the community groups who are so passionate about this place, and many of you are represented here tonight. If we do this, I'm confident that we can clean up the legacy of our past. We can find better, greener ways to do things. And we can continue to live alongside this magnificent taonga to protect it for future generations. This will be my last attending Sir St. John Logan Campbell lecture as Mayor of this city. I would encourage the new Mayor to continue and extend the initiative and the spirit of Sir John Logan Campbell, the founding father of the city. Kerry, as a Professor Emeritus, has spent a lifetime writing about the Pacific Polynesian New Zealand culture and history. His ten books have been internationally acclaimed and his edition of Waka Moana, Voyages of the Ancestors, received the Montana Book Award for History in 2007. He graduated with an MA in History from the University of Auckland and a PhD in Pacific History from the Australian National University. But I think his passion is the golf. He's a proud Aucklander. He is going to give us reflections on his passion and his love for this part of our city. And I'm sure he's going to leave us with some challenges. Ladies and gentlemen, can we put our hands together for Professor Emeritus Kerry Howe. Mr. Mayor, citizens, I'm honoured to present the fifth mayoral John Logan Campbell Memorial Lecture. I thank you, Mayor Len Brown, for your most generous introduction. And you obviously know an awful amount about the golf. And for a minute, I wondered who should be giving the lecture. <laughs> and I wish you all the very best for life after the mayoralty. I'd like to thank Craig Glover from the Mayor's Office for his behind-the-scenes work 
And I too would like to thank the organising committee for their support and guidance. And I do want to mention someone who's already been mentioned here several times tonight, and that's Professor Russell Stone, who's a member of that committee. Russell was one of my very first history lecturers when I turned up at Auckland University in 1965. It's an awful long time ago. He has remained to this day a supporter of me, of my career, and I'm terribly grateful for that. He is also the esteemed biographer of John Logan Campbell, so you can see that everything is connected to everything else. Ah, never can I forget that morning when first I gazed on the Waitematas waters, the lovely expanse of water with its gorgeous colouring stretched away to the base of the Rangitoto, whose twin peak, cutting clearly into the deep blue sky, sloped in graceful outline to the shore a thousand feet below. Still farther distant, we saw a bold, round, high headland, backed by a still higher hill, and far away before us, a long expanse of glancing waters as far as the eye could reach. So wrote John Logan Campbell about his first visit in 1840. It's a description that still rings true to us today. The Gulf and its islands define Auckland. We love them. They are our recreational paradise. They are our treasure islands. Campbell was possibly the first European owner of a Gulf island. And as Len has already told you, with his business partner, William Brown, he bought what became known as Brown's Island from Ngāti Tamatira. It was a speculative venture because it was rumoured that Governor Hobson was maybe about to move the capital to Auckland. And also, as Len explained, they lived on a foray, they raised pigs, they traded with local Maori. Brown's Island is just the first example of land banking in Auckland. And the rumoured capital did arrive... Brown's Island remains exactly as it was in Campbell's time. You can wander about there and enjoy a peaceful 1840s type isolation, and then you look over to the city and you see the 21st century. I regard myself as a child of the Gulf. My parents married at the start of World War II. Dad immediately went off to fight. He ended up as a German prisoner of war for the duration. My mum joined the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps. She became a gunner based on Motutapu with a Mark 21 six-inch naval guns for most of the war. I still have her hand-copied gunner's instruction manual. I was born in 1947. I grew up in a state house near Naranek Beach. I've relied all my life on Gulf Islands and waters for my beloved recreational pursuits for my emotional anchor. Even for periods when I lived elsewhere on Earth, the Gulf has always been my heartland. It's a common enough experience. It's striking how many New Zealanders, when overseas, dream of Gulf Islands. And how many of you have woken after that endless overnight flight from LA to Auckland? You've looked outside through gritty eyes and you've suddenly seen the Gulf Islands close below on that long, glorious sunrise glide path to the airport. Yes? Yes. 
I'm here tonight because about four months ago I published this book to the islands, subtitle Exploring, Remembering, Imagining the Hauraki Gulf. I wrote it fairly quickly, though it's been in my head for a lifetime. My engagement with the Gulf has in some ways intensified in recent decades with extensive distance sea kayaking and sailing. I love our 50-year-old Townsend 30 to bits. That's it on the cover. It's pure Kauri, pure Des Townsend craftsmanship. Its name is Mercury. The book examines the nature, culture, history and politics of the Gulf Islands. It ranges from boating matters to Maori and colonial history to natural history to environmental matters, which is going to be the main focus of my talk tonight. The book is also very much a personal encounter, a lifelong love story about a place. It's a journey of the emotional and intellectual self. It is for sale here tonight. I hope you'll take a copy home. <laughs> so here are our islands and golf, utterly familiar, utterly comforting to us all. I love its changeable weather. I love the atmospherics. I love small diesel engine maintenance. <laughs> I love the sea and the shorebirds. I especially love lighthouses. And I love inshore exploration and snorkeling and blood-red pahutakawa in remote places and visiting Maori pa and settlement sites and the walks and the unreal views and climbing high peaks and anchoring in impossibly beautiful places and of course red wine in the cockpit at sunset and dolphins on the bow and orca and fishing of course then and now <laughs> oh dear and the annual family synchronized swimming extravaganza <laughs> oh my god and those glorious winter days when the sea and the sky are so pale and delicate it seems that they might crack. And the sheer primeval poetic joy of being blown along by the wind. Thus so far the present, we all recognise it. It makes us all feel good. Was the golf always like this? Will it, will it, was the golf like the, oh, sorry, was the golf like this? Will it always be like this? Well, let's see. Ever since humans arrived in New Zealand, they have exploited and modified the landscape, including the Gulf Islands. It's what humans do everywhere they go on Earth. New Zealand before humans arrived in about 1300 AD was covered in forest, and it was, above all, a land of birds, many of them large, non-flying, ground-dwelling and nesting. They had no mammalian predators. Maori brought with them from Polynesia a dog and the Pacific rat. They terrorised ground-dwelling birds and destroyed their eggs. The rats were also voracious eaters of seeds and seedlings. Maori were consumers and users of birds. Some 30 bird species became extinct. And Maori agricultural practices, particularly with firing, eventually reduced lowland forests by as much as 40% during the 500 years of their exclusive occupation. 
Māori were present on Gulf Islands from the earliest times of their settlement. Those in this particular location on Motutapu Island left their footprints in those of their dogs in the Rangatoto ash of the, in the eruptions of around 1400 AD. Gulf Islands were favoured locations for birding, fishing, gardening and workable stones. And the ecological ravages of the mainlands were mirrored on Gulf Islands. By the time of first European contact, the inner Gulf Islands were mostly, though not entirely, cleared of the original forest and turned often into a kind of a scrubland. With the coming of Western colonists, things got a lot worse for the environment. Agricultural farming saw most of New Zealand's remaining lowland forests slashed and burned. There were at least another 20 bird extinctions. And as well, every possible creature scuttled ashore. I've called them Western critters. They're only Western because they came on Western ships. All these variously appear throughout the Gulf Islands. Gray and others of the time were ardent acclimatizationists. Gray in particular introduced to Kauau what now seems like a very bizarre range of creatures, including zebras and monkeys. The latter slept in a tree outside his window at Mansion House. The early morning chattering drove him to distraction, and one morning he got out his shotgun and through the bedroom window he finished them all off. <laughs> his legacy remains today on Kauau with possums, kookaburra, peacocks, wallaby. Kauau also has a very unique bush covering, thanks to Gray's wallabies. It's mostly kaunuka, that's the, the tall tea tree. Wallabies don't like kaunuka, but eat most other vegetation. So there's often little or no undergrowth, and thus no emergent canopy over the kaunuka. And they did not eat Gray's imported pine trees, whose wilding descendants, now in the mansion house area, are grotesquely twisted and lean on each other for support and increasingly fall over in old age, just like very old people. Gray also planted on Kauau many other exotic trees from all over the world. Here's his Californian redwood, or sequoia. Now, Maori had all also brought plants to New Zealand from the tropics, and most did not survive. But one of the very few that did, though only as a very poor specimen, was taro. Now, on Kauau today, just near Gray's redwood tree, is a stand of taro, with its genetic ancestry going back to Southeast Asia 4,000 years ago. I'm not sure how many people are aware that it's there, but I am, and it makes me so excited, because if you know what to look for, you can literally read the landscape like a book. It always seems to surprise people when I say that the first act of the Industrial Revolution in New Zealand took place on Kauau Island, and that was copper mining and smelting in the 1840s. And there are vivid remains today, notably the remnants of the old Cornish pump house, there's the shaft entrances, and so on. Copper had a high sulphur content and was inclined to heat up and burn, which is not good in a ship's hold. So the smelters were constructed to burn off the sulphur. The one in Bonacord Harbour killed all the bush for miles around with its sulphur fumes. That's how it looks today. Copper mining also took place on Great Barrier, with some small efforts on some of the Hen and Chicken Islands. Then came the ravages of the Kauri timber extraction on many of the islands, including small stands on Waiheke and Kauau, but most notably on Great Barrier 
where it lasted from the 1890s to the 1930s, and it left a barren landscape. The technique was to tumble the timber down the steep hillsides, steam winch it to the winches, uh, to the ridges, where it was tumbled again until it reached either the bush tramway that went to Whangaparapara or the Kauri dams on the Kaiarara Gully. This is the best known dam. Some of you might not be aware that it's no longer there. It was wiped out a couple of years ago in a big storm. The sawmills in Whangaparapara were the largest in the southern hemisphere. There was silver and gold mining for a time on Great Barrier and also some manganese mining on, on other islands. Mining companies still sometimes make noises about mining on Great Barrier again. We are familiar with the fact that many of the Auckland volcanic cones were quarried for scoria. Rangitoto at Islington Bay was also quarried for scoria, as well as for basalt, for buildings in Auckland, and for the construction of the seawall along the Auckland Waterfront Drive. That's how it looks today from Google Earth. It was the, uh, a munitions base during World War II. On inner Gulf Islands, there was significant quarrying, significant quarrying for gravel, for roading, and large-scale extraction of sand and shingle for concrete for the city. You can still see the scars and the remnants all over the Gulf, Motutara Island, and especially in Hooks Bay and Ofanaki on Waiheke. We still mine sand today, that beautiful silica sand just outside the surf line at Parkery Beach. It came from the central North Island volcanic plateau when the Waikato River once flowed across the Hauraki Plains and into the Gulf, whose shoreline then began at Parkery and went across the Great Barrier due to lower sea levels. No more silica sand is ever going to come this way again. By the 1880s, many Gulf Islands were largely bare, with sometimes eroded landscapes. This remained the case until at least the 1970s and beyond. There were many attempts to farm them, but farmers often struggled with poor soils, weed-infested pastures, water shortages, and the islands were plagued with rats, mice, rabbits, and so on. Of course, there had been some far-sighted individuals, even in the late 19th century, who had argued for and got protection for some native species on some of the remote islands of the Gulf, notably Little Barrier with its Tuatara population, and a bit later in the 1920s, uh, with the hen and chickens. But it's really only after the 1970s, with our new awareness of environmental issues, was there real action in the inner gulf. From the 1970s, there was a conscious decision to restore gulf islands and crown ownership. This was undertaken by the Department of Conservation and later in association with various restoration trusts. Some of the restoration work began in the 1980s and continues today. And I think we need to reflect on and be very grateful for the work that DOC has done and does. And while I'm in generosity mode, I must acknowledge the brilliant work of the former Auckland Regional Authority. Without our magnificent coastal Auckland Regional Parks, we would be so much the poorer. Tiritiri Matangi was, of course, the island restoration flagship. The process was to eradicate the pests, to germinate local seeds, then plant the seedlings with a vast volunteer labour force, school kids, sports teams and the general public. 
Starting in the 1980s, within 10 years, the island was replanted. Territory Matangi was followed by the restoration of Motuora, Motuhi, Rangatoto, where they took off all the possums and wallabies. Motu Tapu is still a work in progress. There's the recent private restoration of Rotoroa. There's ongoing natural regeneration on Kaikoura Island. There's massive regrowth of Kauri on Great Barrier. There are many unsung heroes in the story, and among my favourites, because they are not well known, are those scientists and workers who completed the most difficult job of getting rid of all the various predators. And here's my summary list of their successes. And then there are the tireless tree planters. At least a million trees have been planted on the Gulf Islands since the 1980s. And of course, endangered bird, reptile, and insect species have been reintroduced. And there are gannet colonies starting up. And these islands, along with Little Barrier and the hen and chickens, are now world famous in environmental circles. It's an utterly staggering achievement. They are truly our treasure islands. And there are other restorative activities, such as the work done by the Rangatoto Historic Conservation Trust, bringing the old Rangatoto batches back to life. And there's another kind of restoration that I can only briefly touch upon here. Maori on Gulf Islands and in the Auckland area generally were the first in New Zealand comprehensively to lose their lands and they've been among the last to be dealt with by way of treaty settlements. The recent Tamaki Makarau Collective Redress Agreement is but one example of acknowledgement of their former ownership and cultural associations with the Isthmus and the Gulf. But now we come to the big contradiction. If the islands have been physically restored, the waters of the Gulf have not. We cherish the islands, but we trash the sea. Why do we do this? The Hauraki Gulf Forum is a statutory body consisting of government, local body and iwi representatives. It publishes state of the Gulf reports every three years. They're all readily available on free download from the Auckland Council website and also there are neat summary versions. These brilliant reports summarise all the scientific literature about the Gulf. The conclusion of the last one in 2014 paints a rather sad picture. Quote, the cumulative impact of all activities is still pointing to the suppression of environmental values at low levels and progressive environmental decline. Most of us are aware that fish stocks are in fairly serious decline, especially, but not only, snapper. Crayfish have just been described as functionally extinct. The food chain is significantly distorted and depleted from the pelagic fish at the top right down to the bottom dwellers, the shellfish, the marine vegetation. And it's not just commercial fishing having a massive impact. The recreational impact is huge. As we know, shellfish beds in our coastal areas and beaches have long been wrecked by recreational gatherers. The inner Gulf seabed, stretching right across to Coromandel, was once completely covered in mussels. It was commercially dredged from 1900 until it was a sedimentary desert by the 1960s. Shellfish, seagrasses, seaweeds are natural filters of water and cleaners of the water. 
they've been pretty much destroyed right across the inner gulf by the dredging process. Last week I attended a marvellous Haraki Gulf Marine Park uh, seminar at the Auckland Museum. At one point someone got two containers and they poured pristine tamaki estuary water into them. They got a bunch of mussels from the supermarket and they put in one. Within about an hour, an hour and a half, that's the difference. The outer gulf seabed has similarly been ruined in more recent times with commercial deep sea scallop dredging and bottom trawling. And the inner gulf still is plagued by people in fizz boats dragging scallop dredges up and down and up and down and up and down. Agricultural chemicals and dairy effluent from the Waihau and Piako rivers draining the intensive dairy farming on the Hauraki Plains has raised water CO2 levels, it's lowered oxygen levels and is causing acidification. Water pouring out of these rivers is also loaded with sediments. Mangroves have become a highly invasive species in the new sediments. Heavy metals abound in city and suburban waters. In Auckland's frantic coastal housing development, with its now fashionable so-called contouring or sculpturing of the landscape, involves massive levelling and terracing. I liken it to strip mining. This particular one in the Oriwa estuary has been going on for at least two years. After every dose of heavy rain, the sea downstream of all this sort of coastal development runs a thick chocolate brown. I know, I see it all the time outside our kitchen window of our house on the Oriwa estuary. And I see it along the Wangaproa Peninsula. And I see it in the Okura and the Wade River uh, Long Bay areas. And with regard to these last places, the muddy waters empty immediately into one of the very few marine reserves that we have in the Gulf. I missed a slide there, that's the one you should have been looking at with the marine reserve. The Gulf has had a long history of use as a dumping ground. Unwanted ships were dumped on Browns Island and at the back of Rangitoto, and for a very long time the city rubbish was dumped out at sea on the outgoing tide, and of course raw sewerage. And I remember as a kid catching huge fish at the raw sewer outlets at North Head. Nice! Our treated sewerage discharge water these days is now generally much cleaner and it's sometimes cleaner than the seawater that it goes into. But our polluted storm water still empties into the sea and in extreme rain still sometimes gets mixed into the sewerage system. Most Auckland creeks that go into the Gulf are often fairly gross and as we know Auckland beaches are sometimes closed for swimming during the summer due to unsafe bacterial levels. There's a helicopter you've all seen that takes daily summer water samples from each of our city beaches. And our migrating seabirds are threatened by longlining and habitat destruction right across the Pacific. The Gulf is a major destination from birds from around the entire Pacific Hemisphere and especially from the Arctic regions. Miranda has the best known, indeed world famous, concentration of these birds. They are everywhere in Gulf coastal waters. Godwits annually come to the Oriwa estuary every spring. They haven't come yet, I'm a bit worried. Just outside our kitchen window. The numbers have been going down in recent years, I know, because I count them. 
The long-term fate of these migrating birds is problematic. But New Zealand-based seabirds are also in trouble. Even the common seagull or red-billed gull is in strife due to habitat disturbance and pollution. It's a litany of loss. Right, the basic problems and solutions in general terms are actually fairly obvious. So here's Kerry's gender. One, we need extensive marine reserves in the Gulf to help protect fish and shellfish stocks. In my view, it's a disgrace that only 0.3% of Gulf waters have marine reserve status. I actually have no time for arguments about whether commercial or recreational fishing does the most damage, and that maybe there can be some division of Gulf waters between them. They both take out too many fish for the fishery to be sustained. Two, cleaning seawater and coastal environments will dramatically assist all marine and bird life and enhance city living. Thus, we need to change farming practices to stop intensive agricultural runoff. We already know how to do this. It's being done on the farm on Motutapu, for example. We need better control of raw waste water runoff from the city and coastal developments in order to get cleaner, less poisoned, polluted, sediment-saturated and rubbish-filled waters. And I give you the example of Honolulu. Most of you have probably swum there at one stage or another, the beautiful, pristine waters off Waikiki. A long time ago, the city fathers of Honolulu figured out that it was going to cost them more to have dirty beach waters than the cost of keeping them clean. Three. We need to anticipate and manage not only the likely exponential increase of recreational boating, but also marine farming. The two do not readily or easily coexist. Marine farms can so readily take over recreational space, especially in enclosed areas, and raw sewerage from mass boating can sim simply adds to the pollution that might affect marine farms. It's interesting that we all shudder at stories about freedom campers pooing all over our beloved countryside. But very many thousands of recreational boats in Auckland, including our beloved Mercury, legally empty their raw sewage holding tanks straight into the sea. Ah, but that's different. What is it? Auckland boat ownership rates per capita are the highest in the world and they're only going to get significantly higher. Back in 2011, which were the latest figures I could get, so they're grossly out of date, there were 55,000 yachts, launches and powerboats in marinas, moorings and on trailers. Add to that another 75,000 dinghies, small racing yachts and so on. So the boat sewerage problem will get worse and the actual marina and mooring footprint will significantly expand. So might we expect all along the southern and eastern coastlines of Waiheke, large numbers of marinas, and marinas in Kauau, and marinas creeping up the coast to the Maharangi, Omaha, Point Wells. So what are we actually doing about these challenges? Well, there are many committed and dedicated individuals and groups and organisations that clean the Gulf shorelines they actively try to educate people about the devastating impacts of plastic waste and overfishing and so on. A key body is the Hauraki Gulf Forum, which has already been mentioned. There's the related sea change, Taitimu Taipari Group, 
which is currently working on a practical marine spatial plan due out next year to try to deal with some of the Gulf Sea issues. Foundation North has just offered a fund of $5 million for innovative ideas. There's the Mussel Reef Restoration Trust putting large numbers of adult mussels back onto the bare sedimentary seabed. There are iwi groups, fishing groups, conservation groups of various kinds, including committed school students. All concerned, all pondering the issues, all doing something. There's a lot going on out there. And I've been extremely heartened lately by the very large number of newspaper and magazine articles that have started to appear highlighting the poor quality of the Gulf. And all this is great and it's necessary, but to really change things, in my view, two additional things need to happen. Firstly, leadership. We need sensible action plans for our damaged environment to mitigate future problems. And I don't mean merely aspirational PR statements. I mean policy, regulation, legislation, implementation, enforcement. All this requires a major leadership role from central government in conjunction with local bodies, interest groups, community groups. And by leadership, I do not mean top-down command control. I mean the sort of leadership that enfranchises, empowers relevant interest groups to work together towards a set common goal. You see, I don't believe that ultimately it's a money thing. New Zealand is actually a very wealthy country. It's a matter of priorities. And, sadly in my view, environment protection does not rate highly in our current political world. Because, and again, sadly, to my way of thinking, we now live in a political climate where for some decades it has in New Zealand and elsewhere become the norm for central governments to do less with initiatives that affect our lives taken by powerful vested interests. Governments should, in my view, and in critical areas like the environment, be much more proactive rather than occasionally reactive. Secondly, public sentiment and support. Ultimately, it's no good grizzling about lack of leadership at the top of the New Zealand political food chain. If Aucklanders put golf preservation and protection high on their list, and I mean the Gulf waters as well as the islands and the Gulf coastlines, politicians might eventually start to take notice. If we don't, most of them certainly won't. It's probably a good time to ask a few hard questions of candidates in the upcoming local body elections. See what they say when you ask them what their policy on mangroves is. <coughs> when my glass is half empty, I think sometimes that nothing much will happen until we have an environmental crisis with Gulf waters. When my glass is half full, I do note, and as a historian, I'm aware that social values and priorities have been altered over time, for example, with regard to smoking or unprotected sunbathing or racial or gender discrimination and sexual identity and treatment of animals and bike helmets and so on. All such changes have come about through campaigns, often long ones, of public information and education with opinion leaders, political champions, and eventually regulation or legislation. So what will make us as citizens take notice and maybe create a groundswell of opinion? Obviously, the more information we can receive, the better. For example, occasionally I have seen the gruesome cancer pictures on cigarette packets. I saw something differently gruesome the other day. I stole this from a UK yachting magazine, which lists 
the time that various plastic things last in the water. What I hadn't appreciated, we all know that vast amounts, millions of tonnes of plastic are floating around the world and ending up everywhere. What I hadn't appreciated is that that's only 20% of the plastic that goes into the sea. 80% of it sinks or hangs around at certain levels. So how about on the supermarket bag a big label, I last for 50 years. But seriously, I've been wondering, and I wonder aloud here tonight, if we might usefully delve into current public, and public understandings of the sea. The Gulf waters look all right, so what's the problem? The problem is that they usually do look all right. We see the sea, but we don't instinctively understand it. We cannot readily see that it's a closed system, whereby natural balances of water quality and the health of plant and animal life beneath its surface can be so readily disrupted. Ah, that stinking plastic bait packet, chuck it over. Now, Western attitudes towards the sea have actually been quite specifically cultured for well over a thousand years. The common continuous themes are the sea's vastness, its inexhaustible resources, its indestructibility, its immense power. It has an existence which is beyond any human influence. It's only in the last 40 years in the West that these ideas have been seriously challenged, though Rachel Carson, way back in 1951, started to say these things with her foundational The Sea Around Us book. More recently, of course, there's been an exponential scientific documenting that the sea is finite. Its resources are limited. It is vulnerable to human action. But we instinctively still believe that the sea can look after itself. It's a kind of collective cultural blindness. I recently reread Jonathan Rabin's Oxford Book of the Sea, and it suddenly occurred to me that while there is a vast, long standing literature in English about the sea, there really is no equivalent in New Zealand literature. Sure, there's plenty about beaches and boats and sailing and voyages and islands and so on, but there's actually very little that's been written about the sea as a subject or object in its own right. Maybe New Zealanders have a view of the sea which is just a bit different from elsewhere, one that reflects our historical isolation and our geographic isolation, our seaborne migration past, our sense of smallness and vulnerability, whereby we think and write more about the land than the sea. We have a huge and almost religious literature about the various essences of bush and mountains. But reverence for the sea is not, I think, a feature of our literature, and life imitates art. Moreover, our globalised economic culture, based on greed, doesn't just exist at the global corporate level, but its values have permeated all of us. For example, I'm both excited and dismayed every time I go into a fishing shop. There's this dazzling, seductive array of, array of rods and walls of lures that catch far more customers than they'll ever catch fish, and set nets and long lines and dredges and computerised GPS contikis and now drones. In a typical recreational boat these days, going out from a boat ramp, there's no longer a four-metre tinny with a 10-horsepower outboard, but more likely a six to eight metre, 40 knot, 250 horsepower machine loaded with racks of rods and fish finders. Recreational fishing has become utterly commodified by gear and technology. 
And I wonder about the underlying values of this material culture, technically brilliant as it may be. Because it legitimizes and encourages people to go out there faster and further and with more effective ways of taking things from the sea. Those of you who spent any time in the Gulf know that it's like a, a Formula One racetrack out there Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and the same on those afternoons. The real enemy is always within us. And this has got me thinking about how other cultures, notably Polynesian, view the sea. And I do not mean the usual cliched arguments about how they valued and nurtured their environment and lived in harmony with nature. Mostly, and like all other human societies through history, they didn't. But what strikes me is that they did have a very different set of understandings of the sea. In Western culture, the term island always has the connotation of something fixed, immovable, often seen as either sublime or beautiful, but it's a static view. But in the traditional Maori-Polynesian world, the words motu, motuteri, which variously mean island, convey the sense of being cut off, severed, floating, fragile. Entire small island populations knew intimately that their well-being or otherwise depended entirely on the surrounding seas, that at times could be malevolent, bringing storm surges, cyclones, human invaders. At other times, the sea was beneficent, supplying birds and fish and plants and flotsam and sometimes peaceful newcomers. In other words, islands were not independent, self-sustaining entities. Island life was potentially fraught. Humans had no control over what happened. Healthy islands depended on healthy seas. Empty seas, dead reefs, produced ruined islands and debilitated human communities. The traditional Polynesian view was that land and sea were a single entity, and that also included humans. Many Māori still have this view. Most of the rest of us see three independent bits. We've got your land, you've got your sea, and you've got us. This indigenous concept of nature's interconnectedness, I think, can no longer be dismissed by the West as poetic mythology or some touchy-feely spirituality. It is actually a recognition of the very fundamental geophysical and biological facts of our planet, and most of us have yet to accept that. So is it our, cultural, our current cultural lens on the sea the thing that most precludes us from taking serious notice of what is happening to our Gulf waters. In our rational heads, we may know. In our cultural hearts, we know not. Can you imagine an Auckland so crowded and polluted that we can't go for a swim in the sea without getting some rash or illness, where we cannot eat anything from the sea, even if there's anything to catch, where every estuary and mangrove is full of stinking sediment and covered in mangroves? where the whole commercial and recreational marine industry goes into some sort of decline or even collapse because boating and fishing waters are hopelessly marina and mooring infested, gridlocked, polluted and depleted. This is not, I think, an entirely fanciful picture of the future. It certainly happened elsewhere. I invite you to look up um, something like sea pollution or coastal pollution in Google, Google Images, and you might be <coughs> utterly staggered at what is there. The Hauraki Gulf and its beaches and islands define our beloved Auckland. What is Auckland without them? 
I suspect for most of us it's an unthinkable proposition and thus we don't like to think about it and so we don't. Russell Stone, John Logan Campbell's biographer, has so ably described Campbell's life in New Zealand with its ups and its downs and how he was often torn between living here in what he thought was a pretty cultureless place and returning as he periodically did to the civilised world. And how as he got older and returned for good to Auckland, Campbell seems to have valued more his Antipodean experiences. His classic book, Ponamu, was published in 1881, many decades after the events of his Auckland youth that it nostalgically describes. He appreciated his wealth, his esteemed standing as the father of Auckland. He developed a great sense of civic obligation. His Scottish ancestry had imbued him with a strong sense of legacy. Looking at the already sprawling city of the early 20th century, he bequeathed to all of us a haven of green expanse, which is Cornwall Park. It's the biggest green space in the city. And his philanthropy also survives in other ways, for example, the Campbell residuary estate. But maybe, maybe he left us another more subtle gift, the idea of legacy itself. And I think it's pertinent on such occasions as this John Logan Campbell memorial lecture to be reminded of such a notion. So what legacy are we to leave? Do we want to be one of the last generations to enjoy the current wonders of the Gulf? Thank you. Firstly, disclose that he was a little nervous and he shouldn't have been. That was just a sensational oration. Uh, and secondly, um, he said, well, there may be some things that you might not like um, that I might say. And I said, bring it on, Kerry. And he most certainly has. The Auckland Conversations are an opportunity for us, a time of clear and obvious extraordinary change in this city with no lack of challenges. Um, he has highlighted one, and the beauty of these conversations is an opportunity to hear from our most eminent scholars and citizens to inform us and engage us and give us these great opportunities to have a discussion, a debate that may lead inevitably to a change in a decision for the betterment of our city going forward. Tonight, Kerry has left us with evident challenges from a lifetime of passion and involvement and engagement with our beautiful watery garden. Why don't we put our hands together again for Kerry. Okay, so this is an opportunity for uh, everyone to uh, make a statement, uh, make a, have a question, uh, but to engage Kerry in uh, this passion uh, and ask him for further reflections or maybe tease out some of the comments and challenge that he's placed before us here tonight. So, far away. <laughs> yes, sir. How are you going to get rid of the muscle farms and barrier? The question is, am I going to get rid of the muscle farms and barrier? Well, it's not up to me. Um, 
At the moment, I think there are about four there. They're not too much of a problem for all the boaties. But a few more, and there would be some issues of whose space is it. So the, the other thing while we're on that that I think about is that the most of the mussel farms, as you know, are off um, Coromandel Peninsula. Uh, many, many, many acres and acres and acres of them. It, it's not pristine recreational ground. But that's also likely to be one of the areas of the Gulf where pollution is going to become a problem for the mussel farms. And my own personal fear is that they will simply move out to deeper, as yet clearer waters, such as Great Barrier. Just while you're contemplating your next question, um, we have been reflecting tonight on the uh, spirit of Sir John Logan Campbell, and uh, Kerry, in, at the conclusion, talked about uh, his amazing gift to us in Cornwall Park. And I want to acknowledge a couple of the Cornwall Park trustees who are with us tonight. Uh, Michael Horton and John Connell. It's great to have you guys here continuing on uh, the spirit, although, Michael, I do realise you're no longer in it, but after 34 years of service and many as the chair, um, you know, we do want to recognise you. Right, next question, please. Can we put our hands together, please? Stunned into silence. Okay, I'll have a crack at it. Uh, so we, um, in December last year, uh, signed a Global Climate Change Agreement. Uh, the government put our signature to it. Uh, as the Mayor of the City, I was present to support that and also ensure that the voice of Auckland was heard at a city's conference that was led by the Mayor of Paris. So, um, as, as you reflect on the fact that uh, your primary concern, our concern, is the impact on the biodiversity of our Gulf and a worsening impact. Do you think there is anything within that agreement uh, that may be of assistance uh, to us in terms of reshaping some of uh, the political leadership direction, both at a national level and also at our local level? I, I'm not a politician. <laughs> um, I think anything <laughs> that will move things forward a bit is, is going to be worthwhile. I, I'm always slightly, I guess if I'm being honest, I'm always slightly cynical of, um, political, about um, political statements. But I am aware that there really is a, a growing passion amongst a significant number of citizens who think about these things that we've really got to do things very, very differently. And that, that sea change spatial plan is going to be, I think, very interesting, not just in what it might propose, but in how it is received and in whether many of its ideas, which may or may not be radical, I don't know, I'm not privy to it, um, the extent to which they're implemented by the political authorities. Um, 
I'm not a scientist, but I understand that it is. The question was, is ozone not a, a detoxifying thing? I, I think the point is that the natural mechanisms for detoxing our planet have it look at the moment to be pretty much overwhelmed <laughs> by what we are doing to the planet. And that um, just saying that nature will look after itself, I, I think personally is not an option. The question is, what about the ports of Auckland? <laughs> My view is that the sooner it moves out of the place, the better. We've got two very good ports. We've got Tauranga and we've got Wangarei Harbour, Northport. We can have containers from both of those places in Auckland in a matter of hours. We can have inland distribution points in Auckland. I think it's an absolute no-brainer that we're still mucking around thinking of havoc in, in the city. I don't have that expertise. The question is, um, are current quota measures and fish sizes sort of adequate? <laughs> um, I mean, the short answer is no, they're not, because you know, the, f the fish stocks are, are not, not in the best of shapes. How you might manage the fishery is another, another matter. Um, I, I think, and I've heard about some quite revolutionary techniques for catching fish that don't necessarily trawl the bottom, even though they take them from the bottom. Uh, High-tech uh, traps that can quite effectively target certain fish and let other ones out of the net. Um, all these things are possible, but of course it's the economic drivers <laughs> that are the, the real problem. The technology is never the problem. It's the economic drivers. Yeah. Do I want more marine reserves? Sorry, what's your opinion, what's your main impediment to coming up with my, is it public? Um, okay, there, there, are three, there are three impediments. This is the commercial fishing industry, the recreational fishing lobby, and certain iwi groups. And that's a fairly formidable combination. And what we've seen in the Gulf before, I mean, just a few years ago, there was an attempt to form a quite a substantial uh, marine reserve out off the northeastern tip of Great Barrier. It never happened. And in, the, in our current, the way we currently conduct our politics, I personally think it's going to be very difficult to stand up to all of those groups, especially to people like me who, who like to go fishing. It's going to be very hard for any politician to stand up and say, you can't go, you, you can't go here, you can't go there. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real serious challenge. You know, Lee Kuan Yew could have got away with it, but That's right. we, we don't work like that. But he didn't have as much coastline. No. <laughs> Gary, probably as a follow-up to that last question is, you know, with your knowledge and experience of the, the Gulf, where would you see the extent of these reserves ideally? And what would be your vision for the Gulf and the Gulf? 
Yeah, where would I put the marine reserves? <laughs> oh. I, I think I think they've got to be substantial. And I think we probably have to start off, and this is going to be the most politically difficult part, we, we're going to have to start off with them being in areas that actually are going to hurt people, closer to the inner gulf, um, because that's where most of the fishing takes place. Um. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about um, when there's no fish. You know, the, the world is full of examples of what happens when you overfish. Look what's happened to whales. Look what's happened to the Atlantic salmon, the Pacific salmon, the Atlantic cod, Chatham Island crayfish, orange ruffy off the west coast of the south. You, you can go on all night. It, it's, again, it's, it's a no-brainer, but, you know. Yes, Coralie. Pass, I'm not aware of that. Is anybody else aware of, of the fish farm on Snapper Farm on Cowell? It's not there now. I don't know. Very good. Further questions? Okay, stop. Sandra, and then down the back after Sandra. I think, I, I thank you very much for your talk tonight. I think the part I liked best was when you were thinking um, and giving us the benefit of your, both your experience and your. Um, it is curious the different attitude towards the land and the sea. And one of the things when you think about the land, it's either publicly owned or it's privately owned, it's all owned by somebody, and therefore there are sort of certain rights around it. With the sea, it's kind of like our commons. And when you hear people, particularly recreational fishermen, talk about it, it is kind of almost religious, it's like it's a birthright of, of Kiwis and so I'm asking you to comment on that, you know, we do seem, like they get, I mean I was at a terrible Karaka Golf meeting where a, an arch proponent of recreational fishing said it was better than sex and um, <laughs> Oh that's, that's an interesting idea, recreational fishing is better than sex you said. <laughs> no, no you didn't say it, no. no, no. <laughs> There is something different in the relationship for New Zealanders between their relationship with the land and, and the sea, which is kind of like this unbridled exploitation is the birthright. I, th I think you're right. It, it's the last frontier. It's um, the place where we can all go and show our macho skills and you know, we can bring home some fish and we can feed the family. It's, it's all those things. It, it's all deep cultural stuff. I, I heard a, a lovely comment by Kennedy Warren on the radio the other day. He said he, he dreamed of the day when fishermen come back or people come back from boating and instead of skiting about all the, the kingfish they've got and all the snapper they've got, talk about how many um, uh, blue penguin they saw or, you know, 
how, how many, you know, what sort of birds did they see? Or just going snorkeling and skin diving just to look at what's under the water. I mean, there are, there are places overseas where, you know, there are whole tourist industries on just looking at stuff. I mean, we look at whales. We don't, in this country anyway, we don't spare whales anymore. <coughs> so so I, think, I think it is all ultimately in our heads how we perceive our environment. Uh, Ma'am, right down the back and then serve you. <laughs> well done, that man. The book is available over here for $35. Um, well, it's about nature, culture, history, politics of the Gulf. It starts from Go and it comes right through to the present. It's got a lot of um, Maori history, uh, colonial history, um, natural history, environmental stuff, and just the sheer beauties and joys that you can have going to the different islands and seeing different stuff. I talk about every island. Um, and it's just a magnificent read. <laughs> what else can I say? Well, if I'm tempted to actually close it down on a very positive note. Um, <laughs> but um, I do have uh, someone, Sue, you next and then me. Just thinking about the marine reserves question, and, and it sounds like you've given up. I know that in about 20 years ago, they were in exactly the same position in Rarotonga, that they didn't have uh, hardly any fish left on the reef. And uh, if people wanted to snorkel, they had to go to Aitutaki or to other, other islands. And they implemented for a very short period of time, two years, they implemented the Rahui on a fifth of the uh, environment, a fifth of the, uh, of the surrounding waters. And there was a lot of opposition because people live fishing after two years, everybody on the island, everybody insisted that the Rahus had to stay forever. Because not only could people now go snorkeling and see fish, but they could also go to catch fish. Because there were fish again. There weren't any fish before. Now I know that the life cycles in the tropics are a little bit faster than they would be here. But I reckon that if you, instead of always trying to work for far offshore um, marine reserves, we should. I mean, it's a, it's a Maori concept. It's a concept that, that, that is of ours as well. We could actually maybe take the mechanism of trying to work for Rahui, which are maybe if I can't fish for the next two years, but I will be able to fish again after that, people might be more inclined to, uh, to agree with that. We certainly work there. And the snorkeling on the Rarotonga is actually fantastic. Suggestion. Ma'am, perhaps a last word to you because I am mindful of time. Like the islands and the Araki Forum mm -hmm. last week, and it's absolutely um, delightful to hear, particularly that man who made those fish traps yep. and had different panels that he could fit in so that the fish he didn't want to take were able to get away. 
Yeah, you, prob yeah. you probably could. Um, the, the question is um, referring to the same session that, um, that I was at. There's a, um, a fishing couple from the Hawke's Bay and they've developed a technique of a certain sort of trap which is on the bottom but it doesn't disturb the bottom and it's got all sorts of um, differently shaped holes and things that they can adjust depending on what the target fish is. So if they're going for snapper, it'll it'll catch snapper, but the undersized snapper and other sorts of fish will will get out. And also they'll get out at the bottom level. They won't be dragged to the surface before before being released and damaged. And they I forget the figures, but they are catching I don't know, probably only about ten percent of the fish now that they used to when they were you know, into the mass fish catching. They are earning much more money than they've ever earned before because this selection technique is also um, tied in with some very sophisticated marketing. They've got into some high-end restaurants in the Hawke's Bay somewhere and also in Singapore. So they're catching a small amount of fish, quality fish, they're doing deals with chefs who prepare fish and lots of different fish that people don't normally eat. You know, kawai can be the most beautiful fish if it's if it's prepared properly. And now, whether that's possible in today's global corporate fishing environment, I don't know. But again, technically, all these things are possible. It's to do with a political will, which is always influenced by economic factors of one sort or another. Okay, so Kerry's been on his feet for an hour, and um, I, I want to uh, also recognise the fact that most of us have been here for near, nearly an hour and a half. And uh, so we're always mindful of the fact that um, it's best not to overstay. Uh, and so I want to, uh, Kerry, just um, give us again one more opportunity of thanking you for uh, an outstanding conversation with us. And. Um, just pick up on one point as, as maybe or potentially a way to go forward. Uh, so this time uh, for Auckland is a unique time. Uh, we are united in a civic sense and in many other ways. Uh, Māori are united in a way that they've never been before and, and also by and large have resolved their settlements. So this is a unique time, uh, a, a historic time. And uh, we have used uh, the united nature of our council to maybe for the first time ever, really get a very clear consensus, or a reasonable consensus for Aucklanders, on the issue of how we go forward on transport and dealing with that big issue. And uh, I think ostensibly the bringing together of us under a common umbrella has enabled that to happen and given the government a very clear path. And maybe the next challenge from you, Kerry, and for us all, is to get in the goal set up more obvious parks and look to do our best to preserve it for future generations. So Kerry, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing your passion and your love with us and great knowledge. You will put your together. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz.
Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 